Hey, hey, welcome. Another edition of the Disability Law Show. Good having you here for the next hour. John Scholes hosting and my co-host and beside me with all the knowledge, the one who really needs to be here, Tamara Gopian, courtesy Samfiru Tamarkin LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. Want to remind you anytime you can reach out to Tamar. She's got a, a wonderful team and colleagues behind her, always assisting, always helping. It's a it's an easy phone call just to have a chat. No obligation. Just go to one 855 Two one fifty nine hundred and help at disabilityrights.ca. Uh, Tomorrow emails already flying in. There's a big shock. They always do. They add up all week, and we try to whittle down the pile a little bit. But we always start off with a case of the day or something you've been working on, pal. What do you got this week? I wanted to feature today uh, a conversation that I had with a woman yesterday about her disability claim because it actually had a lot of elements of things that I think our listeners may be interested to hear about. And you're absolutely right, John. These phone calls are so, so important. And we actually wrapped up our call yesterday with her saying, thank you so much for all this information tomorrow. And we're happy to do it because it's absolutely free. Uh, but more to the point uh, was her sharing with me what had happened with her disability situation. In essence, she had had growing concerns with her employment uh, for a number of years, actually, with the workload and the demands and short-staffed and so on. And she had been butting her head up against HR to try and get better resourcing, better support. And it all sort of culminated uh, earlier this year where she had a mental breakdown. And she was quite open about it, and I appreciated her being open about it, even though I know it's difficult for people to talk about. But what was really significant was that she had the support of her doctor and her psychotherapist to actually just stop working entirely. And she spent a few months really focusing on her health. And in the process of doing all of that, um, she applied for short-term disability and was denied in that time frame. And so while she's trying to recover, you know, she's dealing with the disability insurer and somewhat frustratingly couldn't understand why her claim was being denied. And notoriously, as insurers do, uh, even for short-term claims, they will look to see how much of an impact your work setting is having with your disability. And unfortunately, with work stress, um, there is a tendency for disability insurers to deny these types of claims, John. And they do it because they assume that it is a poor work situation and nothing more, that uh, you know they can relegate you back to your work setting to work this through with your employer, and that in fact, you should be able to actually do your own job, uh, regardless of what's going on. Uh, because the principle really from a disability perspective is that you must be totally disabled from your own occupation, not necessarily your own job. So what does that mean? In other words, the disability insurer doesn't much care about the work setting, uh, at least from an analysis perspective, because they're looking very strictly to the words of the policy and looking to see whether your health actually aligns with those words, and if so, they'll pay the benefit. Where am I going with this? Well, I, with her disability claim, her doctors characterized it uh, quite a bit as a situational type anxiety, mental health condition, depression. And when we see the word situational, this is really where we see disability insurers saying, you know what, this is a work issue. This is not a true disability claim. However, things did not go well. She returned actually back to work um, after having some months of recovery and feeling better. She was given the green light to return and it didn't last for very long and she went off work again. So this is the point in which she actually contacted us saying, what are my options here? And by all means, I think there is a component here that 
is an employment component, save for our employment yeah. show. But just looking at it from a disability perspective very strictly, uh, the conversation was, well, look, um, if your health issues are persisting and they're persisting outside of the work setting, I don't think the insurance company really has it right here. And she was getting into the time frame now, John, because it had been some months to actually apply for long term. And nobody at her work setting or the insurance company had actually told her, you must make that LTD application. Turns out it was with a different insurer entirely. So there's a whole other process that she needed to be aware of. So I thought it was important for us to talk about it at the top of the show because mental health claims are absolutely valid disability claims. I think that there are certain words that insurance companies have just associated with denying claims, including situational. So if your health issues are persisting and you're getting treatment holistically and you're, the impacts are not just in your work setting, but outside of your work setting, which for most people they are, then you want that emphasized in your medical information so that it resists the insurer's temptation to just simply say no. And if you are in this process for some months and you've been denied short term, be mindful of the fact that you are still entitled to long-term. It's a battle actually sometimes drawn for individuals to get the forms even from their employer to apply for long-term. I don't know why. I don't understand what the resistance is by these employer for, employers for providing these forms. But just because you've been denied short-term doesn't mean that you necessarily are going to be denied long-term or that you're not entitled to long-term. I had one guy telling me, oh yeah, my employer said I'm not even entitled because my short-term was denied. Nothing could be further from the truth. So it's important that we put out this information so that inf people know, look, what are my rights here, what are my options? I think for the woman that we spoke with yesterday, I recommended to her, look, you should apply for long-term. It serves a couple of purposes. First and foremost, it crystallizes your light right to that benefit so that you're not getting an insurance company saying you were too late or you didn't apply, so you're not entitled. Right. And secondly, I mean, it creates further medical support of ongoing total disability. So anything that gets generated by your doctors that are supporting ongoing dis disabling health issues are helpful to leverage against either the short-term insurer or provider and the long-term insurance company. So to wrap that up in terms of our week that was, I think that really is something that's indicative of what a lot of people have been experiencing, unfortunately, which is a work setting born disability that then leads to these challenges with getting benefits approved. And what the insurance companies, I guess they do or do not realize, which is not beneficial to them, is once they start poking around and they start, you know, causing, you know, more grief for those that are on, either on short term looking for long term, is it'll exacerbate their condition. And often they don't get better as quickly, which is to the insurance company's advantage to get them off claim faster, right? That's an excellent point, John. And yes, the insurance company's primary goal is either to deny valid claims so they don't have to pay them out or actually, yes, deny them later on so they don't have to continue paying out. Uh, that's their profit model, right? I mean, that's the way they make money is to collect these premiums and resist paying these types of claims. With mental health in particular, though, it can be a relapsing and remitting type condition. So in other words, there are periods where things get better and periods where things get worse, but perhaps it never goes away. So individuals you know, may learn to manage it and find themselves back in a work setting, fantastic. But I think because of that, because of the nature of that, 
insurance companies companies really don't want to see recurrence claims, which very often happen, right? They don't mm-hmm. want you back on claim after you've been off for a while and back to work and they don't have to pay you. But most of these policies actually contemplate that. And I think the mental health claims are the ones that really align with what these policies are meant to do, which is to provide that support to allow you to be off work for periods of time to focus on your health and actually try and get better. But if what the insurer is doing is making things worse in that process, then the courts have recognized that that impact does attract additional compensation. It's called damages. And the threshold for that for mental health claims is not very high, John. I mean, all an individual has to demonstrate or attest to is that the insurance company made things worse. And if they did, then there are, you know, tens of thousands that are available as additional compensation for individuals in situations like this. And the insurers know it. So I'm actually quite confused as to why they haven't done more to educate their adjusters. Again, maybe it's because it costs them money. But at the end of the day, this is why we do what we do. That's why we are here is to help people. We're very empathetic. We understand these kinds of claims really well. And we know the ins and outs of these policies. So if like the woman I spoke with yesterday, she's on this path of potential recurrence. She's on the path of applying for short-term, long-term. We know how to help navigate. And even if people don't feel you know, well enough to speak with us, we're happy to speak with their family members. And we've got lots for of sure. other resources as well, like our other websites that have information. You know, ltdfaq.ca, for example, has some helpful memos on there. Lots of ways to get a hold of us or get some information so you know what to do. And that phone number again, one 821 5900 Email help at disabilityrights.ca. You can use both of those at, uh, at your leisure whenever you'd like and have more of a, a lengthy private conversation with Tamar and her team. Let's get to uh, Joanne. First one up says, guys, it was approved for disability last year. A few months ago, the insurance company told me I had to go for a neuropsychologist for an assessment. There's companies, the insurance companies telling you this. Uh, a few weeks later, the claims manager called to tell me that they were ending my benefits. My counselor, my psychiatrist, and my family doctor all say that I should not be working. When I asked why, she said because the neuropsychologist determined that I'm not totally disabled. When I looked up the neuropsychologist, it says that he has a previous finding of professional misconduct and being non-objective. He was found guilty. I feel he is exaggerated to benefit the insurance company. I can't understand why they're allowed to cut off my benefits based on this guy's opinion, especially when all the doctors who treat me say I can't work. How is this possibly fair? It is not fair. Joanne, it is not fair. And this screams a situation where you really want to think about a legal claim. Um, so let's unpack this a bit, John. Joanne tells us that the insurance company has sent her for an assessment a neuropsychologist assessment. So that's a very specific specialty, one that will assess both cognitive strengths and weaknesses and emotional strengths and weaknesses. And I think what troubles me most about this, so this is an independent medical examination most likely, so an IME. And what troubles me most is that the insurer has paid for this and they've paid for a doctor who clearly has a reputation for having issues, right? So now they've selected an expert that has professional conduct issues. And by all means, this is not a good basis for which the insurance company is going to want to rely and take this all the way to a court. They're not going to do it, John. They're not going to stand before a judge and say, this disreputable doctor provided us an opinion of total, not totally disabled. And we relied on that to deny the claim for Joanne 
in the face of multiple doctors that say absolutely the opposite. And not just any doctor, they're not hired guns. These are Joanne's treatment providers. And courts have been very clear that your own treatment providers take precedent. There's more weight put by a judge when they're looking at what's the medical information, who's saying what, and they will prefer those treatment providers' opinions over ones that an insurance company has hired to obtain. So it is not fair, it is not right at all. But I wanna see what this doctor has actually written. She's, Joanne's entitled to get a copy of this report, either from the adjuster directly or sent to her own doctor. There's lots of ways to rebut these kinds of reports, but most importantly, what I don't wanna see happen is that she gives up and she feels frustrated by it so much so that she doesn't know where to turn and she just capitulates to the insurance company's nonsense. And I think that's the worst thing that Joanne can do here, um, even though it's clear that she's still under treatment, she really does need support and that's really where we want to offer people our services because we can help and we know how to navigate these waters. Uh, Joanne, look, we appreciate that you reached out to us, uh, and I'm sorry you've had to experience this, uh, but my hope and expectation is we'll set up a call and uh, we can discuss some next steps. Joanne, appreciate that. we got to slide into a quick break. Back with more. In the meantime, 1-855-821-5900 is how you reach out. Help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue with the Disability Law Show. Stand by. All right. Welcome back to Disability Law Show. Good to have you around. For the remainder, you want to reach out to Tamar and her team anytime. A few different ways. Phone calls, always a, always a good one, right? one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. That's the email address we always go to during the show and uh, beyond that. There's also mydisabilityquestions.com. That's a you can physically type in your questions into your smartphone or your tablet or your desktop and uh, they will be answered promptly. And as uh, Tamar mentioned off the top, helpful memos, really easy to navigate, all about common things we talk about on the show. LTD FAQ. .ca is how you use that, ltdfaq.ca. So, you know, tomorrow you talk in the show about how insurance companies will tell claimants they're, uh, they're, you know, there's other jobs they can do, so get out there and work. The insurance company may offer some some job search help, maybe maybe some short-term training. What happens to those LTD benefits in that kind of situation? Because, you know, at the end of the day, they're looking to get you off claim, right? <laughs> That's exactly right, John. So they're not offering the training or the job search help unless they can get you off claim. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. So... Uh, well, look, the disability policies are set up, most that I have seen are set up with two tests to qualify. The first period of time we call the own occupation test. So if you're totally disabled from doing the job that you were doing at the time that your health prevented you from working, then you're going to qualify for LTD. And then the insurance companies have gotten clever and have embedded a second test. So after a year or two, usually two, your test to qualify changes. And it arguably becomes a lot tougher to meet because it says, is there any occupation that you can do? Anything in the world for which you've got the basic education, training, and experience to do. And that will give you roughly two thirds of what you're making or what you're getting for your LTD. Because let's not forget, LTD is not 100% of your salary. It's always a fraction of what you were earning. And so insurance companies now have used this secondary test to essentially put, get people off claim. And so the threshold for earnings is much lower. It's not your own job, not at 100% of your earnings. And they'll also include in most of their policies to say, we're not concerned if there's no jobs available either. So the availability of work is not part of our analysis. All we're gonna look at is your health 
And we're going to look at these other jobs that you can do. And if there's a less stressful job, if it, there's a lower paying job, but one that will give you two thirds, then we're going to deny your claim at the two year mark, which is where we see a lot of people come to us. So in the context of that, we get a lot of questions from people saying, well, hang on, I've done the same job for 20 years. How is it that the insurance company is now going to say there's something else they can do? I don't really have the, the transferable skills that they say that I do. You know, what's happening with my claim in a situation like this and what's happening with my benefits? That's the real thing. So look, if the disability insurer has denied your claim at the two year mark and your doctors are still saying you're not capable of working in any setting, then the offers of training and finding another job are really hollow. There's really not a lot of meat there in terms of actually helping you because your health is still preventing you from working. So the answer in my mind in that scenario is actually to pursue a claim against the insurance company for more benefits, not really to hold out for them to help you to get back to school or do some other training. That's not the answer. If your health isn't there, that's the starting point. And I'm not saying health assessments, you know, like Joanne described to us, like an IME or something. I'm talking about your own doctors. What are they saying yeah. about your ability to work, right? But if there is some possibility of getting past that point in the sense that your health is improving, that your doctors are supporting that a return to work is, is possible, but perhaps not in the job that you were doing, but something else, then there are provisions in some disability policies that say we will provide additional compensation or additional support you know, to provide you access to these other training measures or education. But it doesn't necessarily mean that your LTD benefits will continue. And so I have had actually, I actually have one file right now, John, that I can think of, of a client who was told by the adjuster, oh yeah, we'll keep paying you while you have, you get further education. She had been doing a fully physical job for over two decades and they were suggesting to her now you should be doing an office-based job. She had debilitating chronic back pain. And so thinking about the idea of sitting, prolonged sitting was going to be a real problem for her, but she was receptive to it because they said to her, okay, well, we're going to put you into an education program, but they cut off her claim anyway at the two-year mark. So I don't want individuals to get lulled into this sense of security by the adjuster saying, yeah, we're going to give you this support because at the end of the day, if they don't have to release that LTD benefit, they won't. And so a lot of the times at that point, they'll say, these are the three jobs we think you can do. You may need some short-term training to do it. Uh, we'll give you a couple more months uh, as compensation, and then you should be able to get back to work. Not solid footing as a decline, but it is something that I've seen quite routinely. So you want to make sure that your own best interests are being served here. And like I said, you know, if your doctors are not signing off on any setting of work, then the answer is to continue to pursue the, the insurer as opposed to taking them up on education for a job that you know physically or from a health perspective, you won't be able to do. Because that recurrence clause, that whole business, it'd be nice to sidestep that and just stay on stay on point with your benefits, either reaching out to you and your doctor, if not both at the same time, right? Because that, that'll get rid of any delay. Well, th this is the concern that I always have with individuals yeah. saying, look, I'm feeling the pressure from the insurance company to get back to work. And that's a real pressure, John. And it's a tactic. It's a strategy these adjusters will use because either way, they're going to find a way to close the claim. So on the one hand, they will say, we think you're ready. And on the other hand, we're gonna, they're going to cut off your income source. So you're going to say, okay, well, maybe they're right. And what choice do I have anyway? I can't survive without that LTD benefit. And that to me is the worst of the scenarios because 
really, I think people do put themselves in this desperation situation and buckle to that pressure. They put themselves in back into a work setting that they know has already been not great from a health perspective and will very often, if they are not ready, be unwell to the point where they have to go off again. And you know, if it's within six months of your prior disability claim, yes, you do get access to the recurrence clause generally, if it's the same insurer or employer rather. Uh, but there's complications around that too, because once they have you off, they don't want you back. So theoretically, what the recurrence claim should do is you submit for their medical saying, look, I tried, I was not successful, I should be back on LTD. And there shouldn't be the waiting period, the qualifying period, which most LCD policies have. When you get unwell and you can't work, usually there's a short-term disability period, then long-term kicks in. So it's about 17 weeks, 26 weeks, but that hold period is an important one because only then does LTD start. Well, with recurrence, you don't have that hold period. You should be theoretically right back on claim if you can demonstrate medically that you cannot continue working. So this is where I have a lot of trouble with the scenario of the pressure of returning yeah. back to work because you're going to get that much more resistance to even get your recurrence claim approved if you go back to the insurance company. So look, this is what we're here for. This is why we support individuals. And the bottom line is, is if it's premature and it's not successful, then by all means, there is a basis for a legal claim against the insurance company. And we're happy to help. Let's get Gordon on here with a, uh, a quick email. It says, guys, my daughter works in a unionized environment and has just been told she's being terminated from LTD. We feel it's unfair. What options does she have? LTD is suggesting they be contacted with an appeal, but we uh, can we utilize your services uh, without going through her own union services? What do you think, Tamar? That's a really good one, Gordon. And I think that the first step to that analysis is to look at the collective agreement. There are many, many unionized individuals that we can help. And I actually don't like the idea of people leaning on their unions for these kinds of claims because they're not experts at this, John. And, and I, I don't want to put ourselves necessarily out there to say we know all, but I do think we know best when it comes to disability and disability litigation. And I think it's at least worth canvassing, can we help? And here's why. There are some unionized individuals where courts have said, look, we don't have the jurisdiction, we don't have the power as a judge to make a ruling as to whether Gordon's uh, daughter is disabled or not pursuant to the disability policy because the collective agreement says that any dispute over that has to be taken up by the union through a grievance. But that sliver of category of individuals is actually quite small. And so a lot of unions just simply assume that they are the go-to for these disputes when in fact, it may not be the case, or in the vast majority, it's not the case at all. I've even heard from individuals, from one person who said to me, my union told me I had to appeal, and that if I wasn't successful, they weren't gonna help me and I had no options. Oh my goodness. So when I heard that, I thought, look, we need to speak more readily on our shows to help people understand that there are options, and most unionized people we can assist. So. Look, our, I think that I want to start with looking at the collective agreement, depending on what the job is. Uh, but the one caveat to all of this is that 
We cannot assist, unfortunately, on the employment side. And so, John, if the disability claim has an employment component, that's a hard stop for us. Those employment rights have to be exercised through the union, through agreements. But LTD in particular, as a disability benefit, typically is governed outside of that collective agreement, and we absolutely can start a legal claim and pursue those rights for Gordon's daughter. Again, Gordon, thanks for the email note. Obviously, you got that help at uh, disabilityrights.ca and the phone number moving forward. Any time for you, and if you're listening to the show, of course, one 821 5900 You know, when looking uh, at paying an LTD claim, will an adjuster, you know, we love our adjusters, will they consider if the claimant's employer will accommodate them back to work? Because that's hmm. what they want, right? Yeah, they will. They will consider that because, uh, and I'm seeing a theme here today, John, because they're going to try and assume work readiness uh, as soon as they can, right? And so if they can get the employer to commit to agreeing to an accommodation or, uh, you know, a gradual return back to work, then the adjuster can leverage that to say back to the claimant, well, look, your employer is taking it back with open arms. And your doctor is saying that you do have some capacity to do X, Y, and Z. So we're going to try and rely on that to deny your claim or deny further benefits and, and pressure you back into this gradual return to work program with accommodation. The thing is, though, you know, it's not always clear to me what the employer is being told of what an individual's restrictions and limitations are, a claimant, while they're on claim. And that assumption that they're going to accommodate uh, is not necessarily the right one by adjusters because oftentimes they don't ask the key question from the employer, which is, will you accommodate permanently or are you going to accommodate for a short period of time? So there's not a great dialogue that I've seen, at least from claims files with adjusters who are contacting these employers to have a real conversation around what does this look like? Because if you've got a claimant you know, who's been on claim for two years or a year and a half even, and is giving is being given sign off to return back to work with some restrictions and limitations. If those restrictions and limitations are permanent, then the accommodation request is permanent as well. And so I think it's too easy for the disability insurer to use this as a fallback position to bring these claims to a close and put it back on the claimant to actually have those real conversations with their employer about permanent disability or permanent accommodation, which in and of itself could be a topic of a whole other show, John, um, with our duty to accommodate questions and so on. But, you know, the long and short of it is, is that, yes, the adjuster will take that into consideration, but will be strategic in trying to bring the claim to a close as a result, unfortunately. More emails coming up after a short break and near that uh, two-year mark. You know what uh, the knock on the door you're going to get. We'll cover that in just a, a couple minutes here as we uh, get back from break. In the meantime, one 821 5900 the number to reach out to Tamar and company, and help at disabilityrights.ca. You can also go to ltdfaq.ca for easy-to-digest notations about uh, disability and all the topics we discuss on this show. So we'll get back into the email after a short break. This is the Disability Law Show. Hang on. And back, you bet. More of the Disability Law Show to go. Reaching out to Tamara Gopian anytime. Sam Firu, Tamark, and LLP. Don't hesitate to make that phone call. She'll pick it up. She'll talk to you. Just uh, give you some baseline information. You can go forward from there if necessary. one 821 5900 Email as well. Help at disabilityrights.com. .ca. That's where we're going. Miriam, as promised, sent this one in. Says, guys, I've been uh, approved LTD. I have been approved uh, for LTD over the two-year mark. 
Now, the insurance company constantly requests updates. I understand uh, that it is needed. However, this causes more anxiety for me and doesn't help my diagnosis. I'm 40 years old. I was wondering if I can convince the insurance company just to give me a buyout or uh, the plan and one-time lump sum. Is this possible? And watch that maneuver. Yeah, Miriam. So look, let's start with this idea of um, being approved past the two-year mark and the updates, the continued requests for updates. LTD benefits inherently are a month-to-month benefit. And I know that's hard for individuals to accept, but the reality is, is that the disability insurer doesn't actually need to release that monthly benefit unless they feel that you have met the test to qualify. I think it's a huge thing that actually Miriam has been approved past the two-year mark because it's the insurance company accepting that she's totally disabled from any occupation. She has no capacity to do an alternative occupation, even earning roughly what she's getting for her LTD benefit. But we can't necessarily assume that they're going to allow her to just simply deal with her health and continue getting that LTD benefit because she also tells us, John, that she's 40. Why is that significant? Most of these disability policies will pay you until you're 65 years old. That's 25 years of benefits for Miriam. So I am not surprised in the least that the adjuster is continuing to hound her for updated information because if there is an opportunity for her or him, the adjuster that is, to close this out and say to their boss, hey, we have now cut off this exposure of the 25 years that's into the future, then guess what? They're going to get a good pat on the back. And that'll be that. And then it leaves Miriam looking around thinking, okay, now what do I do? And so I absolutely understand the temptation of saying, how can I convince or can I convince my adjuster or insurance company to just give me some payments up front and let me get a buyout of the policy for a period of time and I don't have to deal with the constant haranguing from the adjuster and the phone calls and, you know, paying for more medical reports, you know, from my doctor to send over to the company and all of that. I get it. I absolutely get it. But my worry is, is that you will be unnecessarily raising a red yep. flag on yep. your plan or your, your, your policy rather by suggesting this to the insurance company because they're going to turn around and say, wait, hang on. Why is she wanting a buyout? Why is this something that she's interested in doing? Um, Is there something we're missing here? She wants a quick out. And I find generally that will put greater focus or greater scrutiny than it'll do more harm than good at the end of the day. And so with Miriam's situation, I think that she is best to continue to cooperate with the adjudication efforts as difficult as they might be. Maybe you can set some limits around doing some of it via email, perhaps having a set call per month or something like that, or a checkpoint so that you can anticipate when it is that you need to connect with the adjuster so that, you know, you're not getting uh, surprised phone calls or surprise emails saying we need this now in two weeks and really managing that with the relationship with the adjuster. Because at the end of the day, her benefits are still being paid, which I think are it's critical, right? And you really do want to continue to focus on your recovery. And if they make the unfortunate decision to cut off the claim, then by all means, part of the strategy and part of the approach that we have in our team is to actually seek these buyouts on behalf of our claimants and clients. And we do that very effectively, John. I mean, we've got a really good degree of success in doing that for our clients within months of being retained. So it's a really, really good outcome. 
However, it's one that's been initiated in essence by the insurance company having made the first move to make a bonehead decision to cut off a claim <laughs> uh, improperly, right? So once they've approved past the two-year mark, like Miriam, I think it's going to be hard for them to, you know, find proper justification to close out the claim, which is probably why she's experiencing so much heavy adjudication with these monthly touch points and things that she needs to provide. You know, it's a mutual duty of cooperation, though, and of good faith. So I can never say to individuals, look, you, you can't, you can just simply ignore them or not be responsive. That's just simply going to result in your benefits ending. But like I said, if you can create and manage the time frames of those touch points and what is actually required by the adjuster, I think that can go a long way in curbing that, that zealous adjuster, so to speak, trying to find means of, of cutting off an otherwise long claim. Again, guys, one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. If any of this has uh, you know sparked some questions in your mind, you want to reach out to Tamar and her team to ask. You can always do that. Help at disabilityrights.ca. How important uh, is it for you to Tamar to review a person's insurance policy? Because that's exciting stuff to do. But that's when you're assessing their disability claim. How how deep you got to go on that? Well, I do find it exciting because I think I've called myself a disability <laughs> law nerd before. Um, so I do like reading the disability policies, John. Uh, but I think it can be important. Uh, I think it's more important, though, where we see technical declines of disability claims. So if it's a run-of-the-mill type thing, um, as in, a, a you know, you're not totally disabled either from own occupation or any occupation, most insurers do a decent job of at least including, you know, the definition that they're relying upon and contending with some of the medical information they're looking at. So looking at the policy beyond that point, maybe not critical. At some point, I'd like to. But if the insurer has relied on the pre-existing condition clause or mm -hmm. that you're too late, late notice and proof, or, ah, you know, this is not appropriate treatment, for example, I think those kinds of terms and those types of declines have very specific wording and the policies vary one from the other as to how they define those provisions in these disability policies. So if you've got a decline of benefits on those types of bases, then you do want to get your hands on the policy wording itself. And not just the booklet. So most people will get the booklet from the employer. That doesn't necessarily have all the words in it. You want the one that comes from the insurance company. And guess what, folks? You're entitled to get it. So you put it in writing to your insurance company. The Insurance Act says they must provide you with a copy. The starting point is usually the employer, but the insurance company is just as obligated as your employer to provide the actual wording. And then it's very straightforward for lawyers like myself, members of my team, to look at the key sections. We find them fairly quickly and then do a fair analysis on, look, has the insurance company done this right? Have they used the right words? I've even seen situations, John, where adjusters will put some language in the denial letter that's different than what the policy will say. So I'm all over that sort of thing. And I think it's important for people to know their rights and allow us just that opportunity to take a look at not, uh, not necessarily uh, the hill to die on, so to speak, if it is relatively run of the mill, but the technical ones, you do want to take a good read and have a, a good sense of what's going on.
Let's take one more short break before we get to more. Kaya, you're up next with your email. If you've ever wondered how much information you have to divulge to your employer, we'll, uh, we'll cover that in just a minute. In the meantime, reach out anytime to Tamar and her team, 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca as well. We'll continue with more of the Disability Law Show. Stand by. All right, still a few minutes to go here. The Disability Law Show, thank you so much for tuning in uh, today as well. You can always reach out afterwards. You might want to have that conversation off air with Tamar or a member of her crew, always providing that number toll free and easy for you to uh, to use anytime, 1-855-821-5900. The go-to email is help at disabilityrights.ca. Kai is up next. It's guys, I was approved for LTD benefits about eight months ago. I'm under the care of my family doctor and psychologist for depression and anxiety. I'm told it will be a, a long road to recovery. I don't really want my employer to know about all this. But I'm not sure whether the insurance company has already told them. If not, am I obligated to provide my employer updates about my health? Really good question. Really good email, mm-hmm. Kaya. And thank you for reaching out. Uh, you know, and, and I think our listeners probably appreciate at this point, and if they don't, they should, that we've got a team of individuals who practice in both employment law and disability law. I am one of those uh, team members. And so this is one that sort of toggles a little bit of both sides of our expertise at our firm. And here's why. When you are on disability, the disability insurer will provide some periodic updates to your employer. The benefits of having actually a disability insurer involved is that they will not share your medical information. So Kaya can rest assured that it's not coming from her adjuster to the employer about the basis for the disability claim, at least not at this stage. So that's a good thing. Having said that, your employer is also independently entitled to get some information from you directly if they need it about how you were doing. They don't get to see why you're off. They don't get to see the medical information, but they do have the right to information around whether or not you're capable of returning and if so, when. This is the whole, they are allowed to get prognosis, Prognosis. but not diagnosis, right? So the prognosis being, When is there a reasonable likelihood for Kaya to return? She says to us in her email that it's going to be a long road for recovery. So if there's no reasonable likelihood in the short term, then that's the information that you provide to your employer. Some employers will actually require a medical note to put it on file to say, okay, look, you're on a leave of absence, you're getting LTD or short term, uh, but we still need something for our file. If that's the case, my advice to Kaya is keep that medical note relatively brief. It's okay to have a one-liner in a situation like this to have your doctor say her health continues to prevent her from working. She will be reassessed in three months, let's say. And the reason why I would say not forever is because you don't want the employer then to say, well, you're never coming back and making maybe an unfortunate decision of termination. They shouldn't, but they could. Um, and so I just, I like to give that advice to allow people to prevent from that happening. Alternatively, if you don't respond to the employer, the employer may assume that you've abandoned your job. So in essence, you, you've quit or you've resigned and you don't want that to happen either necessarily because you may want to have the option of returning to that position after you've, you know, made the, the steps mm-hmm. to recover and hopefully get back to work. So conclusion being that you can provide some information to your employer not necessarily medical is needed. Different conversation entirely if you're returning back to work, which we covered off earlier in our show. And what do you do then with the disability insurer? So 
it sounds to me like there's a lot of information here to unpack for Kaya from a mental health perspective, which is why the advice she's being given medically is that this is going to be a fairly long journey. The information, uh, by contrast to what you should provide to your employer, the information to the disability insurer actually should be very detailed. The one-liner notes, John, not good enough. You really want, with a mental health claim, to get into the weeds of all of the symptoms that are preventing you from working. So if I'm in Kaya's shoes right now, you really want to engage the family doctor and the psychologist in a meaningful way to say, look, I'm on disability, I'm getting my benefits, uh, I really need your cooperation with any requests from the insurance company for medical information, and you know, please be comprehensive in what you're documenting. I think there's a tendency sometimes to sort of see your doctor or therapist, John, and say it's it's the same. Nothing's gotten better. So the doctor will write down same, right? But literally, I've seen medical notes yeah. that just say same, and same. you know, it doesn't it doesn't validate sufficiently. I think what these true struggles could be when you're dealing with depression and anxiety. There are lots of symptoms that are significant that are tied with those health issues. You know, generally speaking, I can think of sometimes physical symptoms like headaches or nausea, uh, fatigue. I can think of, you know, emotional liability, uh, you know, fragility, anger. There's so many things that can go with it, panic attacks. And so when there's an expectation that it's more of the same, it's it's okay to sort of say to the doctor or the therapist, but you know, this week it happened more than it did last week, or this is feeling more, uh, you know, prevalent this week than it did last week. And the charting those changes and validating those changes medically are very important in getting that information then over to the insurance adjuster. Because let's not forget, these adjusters have no medical training background whatsoever, right? I mean, especially with mental health claims, they're not therapists, they have not done any medical training, um, and their empathy typically, I find, is very low. Uh, and they are just there as, you know, cogs in a business machine to check off boxes and close out claims to the hmm. extent that they can. And so in situations like this, when you can spoon feed the information, like in Kaya's situation, I think it can be very helpful in the disability claim. And if the insurer does make that unfortunate decision of a cutoff down the road, then it could be on improper footing if they've decided to cherry pick information and ignore the balance of the medical that Kaya's already provided, that it's going to be a long road and she needs the support of the LTD benefits while she focuses on her health and recovery. Ken, not that you would ever direct, uh, tell them what to do, but have you had cases where medical teams, doctors have reached out to you, say, you know, we, we just, these forms are, you know, this, this is not what I went to university for. So I could use a little advice on, on what to do and how to navigate this. Not that you would ever tell them how to diagnose, but it's not like that. It's more, you know, it's more paperwork, right? Absolutely. And we're more than happy to speak to any medical professional because, uh, yeah, many of them have not necessarily encountered the rigors of dealing with an insurance adjuster and what it is that they truly need. And I actually think the forms, generally speaking, are very targeted and pointed, whereas free form narrative reports or clinical notes can be more persuasive. So as a general advice, you know, happy to speak to any medical practitioner. Uh, but if you're listening out there, you know, uh, bear that in mind that these forms and these documents that they ask you to sign are really meant for the insurance company's benefit more so necessarily than the patient, unfortunately. And with that, we are done for another show. Appreciate all your emails and correspondence and taking part in the show. We love it. You can continue that conversation now with Tamar and her uh, team at the firm for sure. Just a, a simple phone call, no obligation to ask some questions is totally 
totally okay. one 821 5900 to do that. The email address we always use every show, help at disabilityrights.ca. And to ask other questions online through your smartphone or otherwise, you don't want to even make the phone call, you have an option called mydisabilityquestions.com. And we'll pick it up next week right here on the Disability Law Show.